One of my favorite songs is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I was thinking about that when I was contemplating this topic. If you've been a part of our Wednesday night Bible study, you have some idea where I'm headed. If you have not been a part of our Bible study on Wednesday night, pretty soon you'll have some idea where I'm headed. But right now, let's ask the Lord to guide our minds and hearts as we consider the message for this hour. You turn. Gracious Lord, it is a blessing, but it is also a great responsibility to be the human that stands between the work of divinity in heaven and the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit here on earth. Take these words, Lord, and mold them, I pray. Shape in them. Find fertile soil. So that when this message is done, someone would have made that eternal decision to make the turn and prepare for eternity. And I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. The scripture reading is clear, but I want to read it one more time. Luke 4 and verse 18. Dr. Luke highlights the words of Isaiah the prophet. And if you look at the content of the scripture, you discover immediately that what is cited in this scripture is a continual indication of what happens in the life of a person that is beginning to experience the reverse from where he or she has been moving. And Dr. Luke highlights this verse because it falls into the avenue of understanding what happens when a doctor assists a patient in the kind of medical care that is needed to move their lives in a different direction. He highlights this because Jesus is the great physician that can take any broken life and move it in a direction that will cause us to be amazed at the difference that is made in our lives when we receive a touch from the master physician. Dr. Luke says, speaking of the ministry of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In a nutshell, that's what happens to the life that is turned over to Christ. That is a blueprint of the mission of Christ. He did not come just to save us from our sins. He did not come just to give us an abundant life. He came to completely revolutionize 
and take us through an extreme makeover, getting us ready for heaven. But you might be surprised how many regulations have been established and how many stressful situations have occurred relating to the U-turn. So let's digress for a moment and begin to talk a little bit about the U-turn. I decided to take you down the road of an illustration, and in this scenario, you're going to see the husband and the wife as each one deals with the U-turn quite differently. So young people, for those of you that have had never had the thrilling experience of making a U-turn, the thrilling experience of making a U-turn, allow me to explain. Making a U-turn becomes the all-consuming thought once you recognize that you passed your exit. Once you recognize that you're going in the wrong direction. Once you recognize, oops, I missed my turn. When you decide that you need to make a U-turn, something happens in your mind, Terry, that clicks, and you begin to focus your attention on ways of turning this thing around, going in the wrong direction. It becomes, as I say, the all-consuming thought. But let's go a little deeper into the scenario. If the man is driving, his wife is the one that usually notices it first. And in her mind, without saying a word, he can tell that she just thought, where am I going? The man knows he needs one, but he tries to talk about something that has nothing to do with the U-turn in an attempt to distract his wife from even thinking about it. He knows she knows because she looks at him as if to say, don't think that I didn't notice that we were going in the wrong direction. Amen, ladies. What makes it worse for the husband, though, is if the next possible U-turn, as I've had the privilege of experiencing, is more than 10 miles away. It's 10 difficult miles. Husbands say amen. It's the 10 miles where you'd like to find the key subject to redirect your wife's mind from anything having to do with the fact that you are both going farther and farther away from your destination. To try to make peace, thank you, honey, he slowly begins to pick up the speed, as if to say, honey, it won't be long, and this will all be over. Are you with me in the U-turn? If she's merciful, she begins to humor him by talking about whatever subject he introduces. And husbands can become very creative when he wants to distract his wife's mind. Amen, husbands. But finally, when they both reach the point where they can experience the U-turn together, it becomes the best experience of the day. It is amazing to me that no matter what you do, when you get home from your journey, the first thing that comes up is the U-turn. When you're making that turn, your wife gives off a plastic smile, and the husband gives her a look as if to say, Honey, that will never happen again. 
<laughs> Finally, he tries to do it without her notice. He looks in the mirror as if to say, it's finally behind us. Now, I have had made many U-turns. As a matter of fact, not too long ago, we were on our way to St. Louis, and we had to get there before the bank closed. Many of you that are or were customers of Bank of America, you may know that we lost all of our Bank of Americas here in Southern Illinois. And I had a check to deposit. And so my wife said, let's go to St. Louis to deposit the check. Well, we're moving at a good pace because we had a certain time to get there. And I noticed all of a sudden, you know how you're breathing and you're really moving and there's a good pace and you're enjoying the radio and everything is going fine. And all of a sudden you see nothing but red lights. And you recognize you just passed the exit that would have been the hope of the day. But in your mind, the devil pops up. Because we see that U-turn exclusively reserved for highway patrol only. Anybody know where I'm going? And then the next thing we do is we look around to make sure that there's nothing anywhere nearby that looks like, whether marked or unmarked, a police car. And then we try to gauge the reactions that we're going to get from all the other drivers that have lawfully passed an illegal U-turn. And in our hearts we say, God, forgive us, we are about to break the law. I know what that's like. It started to rain, which really helps mask my intentions. And I made that U-turn. And there's something about the heart that begins to pulsate when you're doing something wrong. Can I get a witness? It just kind of starts picking up, and your heart is just kind of saying, don't arrest me right now. This is going to be an expensive ticket. And you finally make the U-turn, and, and, and will you hit the gas pedal as if you are in the Indy 500. Gosh, you want to get as far away from that section before any lights, camera, helicopters, or anything picks up your activity. And then you get up the next exit, and you look at your wife as if to say, honey, that'll never happen again. Well, I know what that's like. But this subject of U-turns really became an interest of mine when I started to study more deeply into salvation. Because salvation is an amazing thing. Salvation is amazing. And I don't believe that we're going to fully understand the theme of salvation until we get to heaven. I don't believe that we're going to fully understand what Jesus had to go through to get our carcasses into the kingdom. But I'm going to say today, Lord, whatever you need to do, get me in. Can I get an amen? amen. And as I told you before, I don't need a mansion just give me a sleeping bag or a rock. I'll be just fine as long as I make it in. I went a little further also to discover that in the context of U-turns, they vary. And you'll see the reason I bring this out. U-turns vary from state to state. For example, Indiana's regulations are different from Illinois. Indiana is different from Texas. Texas is different from Michigan. And Michigan is different from Georgia. Each one of the districts or the states have their own regulations determining 
what is acceptable if you decide to make a U-turn. And on the very same note, I believe that's the same thing that happens from church to church. Each church, in its experience, in the things that it's gone through, in dealing with people that are, have either been difficult or recalcitrant or kind or loving, have established their own regulations as it relates to helping a sinner turn his or her life around. And as I began to go through the experience of pastoring more than 30, 30-something years, I've discovered that at some point, and I've confessed about this, in my learning, in my growing, I believe that in my ministry, without fully understanding, there were times that I had higher requirements than God for a person to find Jesus. Can I get a little deeper here for a moment? Sometimes we, we have churches that, for one reason or the other, a person leaves and comes back and leaves and comes back and leaves and comes back. And those of us that have already reached perfection know that they're struggling. And we kind of get sick and tired of this in the river, on the bank activity. So what we do to try to hope that they don't leave again is we begin to create more regulations to try to make them feel that this time we got your number and if you leave this time, that's it. There'll be no more mercy from the board. You won't be getting baptized here again because you have finally blown it. And I used to think about that, and as I was studying this topic, I asked the Lord in my own prayer life, Father, forgive me for establishing requirements in my life that demand more from a sinner than you have ever demanded. And I have vowed that I don't want to ever get between God and the way that he looks at a transgressor, because I am thanking the Lord that when I needed his mercy and I came to him, he accepted me as I was and began and began to make changes that I was completely unable and incapable on my best day to ever affect. And we know that God encourages U-turns. As a matter of fact, we find one of the first U-turns talked about in Scripture is one that we are all familiar with. He prescribes the U-turns. So let's begin to unpack this package about U-turns. 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14, a, a pathos of mercy to the children of Israel. And it begins with these words, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If you know it, would you like to read it with me? Here we go. If my people who are called by my name, will what? Humble themselves and what? Pray and seek my faith. And there's the word, and turn from their wicked ways. Look at the promise. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will do what else? Heal their land. As I began to read that scripture, I, I was asking the Lord after studying from week to week. On Wednesday nights, we've been studying the topic of salvation. What is salvation? That is on our Wednesday night Zoom class. I did 
programs on 3ABN about what is salvation, what is reconciliation. And I've, and I've come to, un, to discover that even after 34 years of ministry, there were still some things about salvation that I did not know. And what that is, is not the deep theological rendition of a university, but the simplicity of the heart of Christ longing to have a relationship, longing to bridge the gap, longing to lift the burden of someone who at that very fragile moment is about to give it up, throw the towel in, and walk away completely discouraged. And then scriptures began to come out of my mind when Jesus says, a bruised reed I will not break, and a smoking flax I will not quench. What he's in essence saying is, when a person is at the most fragile place in his or her life, when they're standing on the edge of a bridge, I was thinking about just a couple of days ago, I watched a program where a detective had been handling cases of people that had been literally ripped off by psychics. In one case, some person had given a psychic $741,000 to solve their problems. And they said, these psychics are so well-trained, they can, they can spot the weaknesses in your life as they converse with you, and they can find ways of saying, believe me, trust me, I mean, I'm your friend. And they begin by digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And this one detective, now retired police officer, takes pleasure in helping people that have been duped and ripped off and, and in a difficult situation, he's helped them recover what they've lost. But he said one day he had an eye-opening moment because he called a lady. As a matter of fact, the lady called him and she said, I have been so misused by psychics. I spent all my life's earning. I spent all my children's inheritance trying to turn my life around by giving money to a psychic. And he says, ma'am, I can help you. She said, it's not that simple. I'm standing on the edge of a roof. I'm about to jump. What can you tell me to stop me? It's at those moments. It's at those moments that you don't want to give them a 27 or 28 fundamental study. Come on, somebody help me out. It's at that moment that you need to say, the Lord, give me words that can help that person understand that you still care about them and you can still turn their lives around. Help me not to say to them, repeat after me, I am a sinner. And so I've learned as I've gotten older that there's something about the gospel that many of us preach that does not harmonize with the logic of Christ. Sometimes we establish a criterion of humanity that is a constant irritation to the mission of divinity. Sometimes we establish the complexity of requirements that replaces the simplicity of redemption. Sometimes we put things in Christ's way. As one saying goes, you put the cart before the horse. We put obstacles and roadblocks between the person that needs to find Christ. And all they want at that very, very moment is to be accepted by God. And then when you begin to see the clearer picture, all of a sudden, situations like the thief on the cross starts making sense. Because he never gave a Bible study. He never attended a church service. He never had a vegan meal. 
Uh-oh. He probably made a request that many of us would not have made when they asked, what would you like your last meal to be before your death? But all he said to Christ is, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And in that very nanosecond of a moment, Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. I want to be able to give people that are bound and broken and bruised and without hope the ability to, to run into me, to meet me and say, that's a pastor of compassion. Not a man that has laid down regulations and rules and God's law on the Sabbath and all the other things that go along with it. But brethren, let us never put the cart before the horse. Let us never get to the place where the person has to go through so much that they conclude that they'll never be able to measure up to the standards of righteousness. That's why I'm so glad today to say that Jesus is not bound by the prerequisites of human, uh, humanity, but he is driven by the prerogatives of divinity. He said, I'm not willing that any should perish. And I can tell you, I am here today because Jesus is not willing that any should perish. What do you say? Amen. Not willing. He's not willing to give even one soul to the devil. He's not willing that any should perish. So before we compare the frustrations of the gospel... With the glory of the gospel, let's walk through some of the overlooked passages in the Bible. Some of those passages we read, but we didn't see how it applies to the, to the redemption of humanity. Let's start with Genesis chapter 1. As I go to Genesis chapter 1, I'll reiterate it by simply saying, the only purpose of the gospel is to restore humanity to the image of God. Yeah. Genesis 1 and verse 26, this is before sin entered the world. Then God said... Let us make man in our what? Image. According to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, when I read that passage, I thought, well, that was way back then. But something's happened in the way I think. I saw that passage in a present-day context. Because I believe that when a person falls into sin, God says, let us remake man in our image according to our likeness. In the same way he said, let us make them, and he began the dust process of molding us and putting together all the nuances of the, mag the magnificence of the human body and mind, I believe in the very same way, when our lives have been reduced to nothing but dust, God says again, as he looks at us, let us remake man in our image, according to our likeness. And then when I restore them, they will once again have dominion. It's amazing what happens in your mind when you begin to see salvation in the way that you have never seen it before. Let me give you a left turn. Are you ready for a left turn? Yeah. Revelation chapter 13. <laughs> Revelation chapter 13. The Bible says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And the Bible says, and this beast received a deadly wound, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. 
I'm not telling you to turn to the scripture. I'm just quoting it. I want you to hear me carefully. The beast, representing the power of Rome, received a deadly wound, and the deadly wound was what? Healed. And when the wound was healed, what happened? All the world did what? Wondered or marveled after the beast. Now, let's look at that in the context of redemption. How could that passage have anything to do with redemption, Bob? Here is what God does. When we are wounded, the passion of Christ is to heal a deadly wound in our lives. And I will suggest to you today, when that deadly wound is healed, all the world will wonder and marvel at the difference made in our lives after Christ has healed a wound that had been deadly to our lives. And I believe today, one of the reasons why people are not marveling after us is because we're not saying to Christ, I want you to, wound, to, to heal my deadly wound. And I will tell you, I've had a lot of deadly wounds in my life. But I can praise the Lord today that in the moments where my wounds could have taken my life, the Lord stepped forward and healed that deadly wound. And any glory that we get, any wondering that we experience belongs alone to the God who can heal any deadly wound. What do you say? I love the way Oswald Chambers said it in my utmost force highest. He says it this way. He says, you will never cease to be the most amazed person on earth at what God has done for you on the inside. Now, why is that? Why do you say the inside? Because anybody could look good on the outside. But he says, when, let me say it another way. You will be the most amazed person when you realize the difference that God has made in your life on the inside. On the inside. Scriptures that will come to your mind and start making sense will be some of these. You know that you have passed from death to life when you love your brethren. And then you'll realize that love is not a simple word, but it's a profound word. Because in reality, not many of us have gotten to the place where we can say we love our brethren. But when God changes your life, when God takes your life to that new place, you begin to realize, as one person said to Billy Sunday, you've heard about Billy Sunday. He was a passionate evangelist. Sometimes he would preach five sermons a day. They said, Billy Sunday preached himself to death. But Billy Sunday, every time he preached, somebody experienced the death from sin and a new life in Christ. And one day somebody came to Billy Sunday and said, all you ever talk about is the love of God. Is there anything else that you can preach about? He said, what else is there? <laughs> what else is there? For God so loved the world. And let me make it very clear, brethren, I'm not talking about chief grace. I'm not talking about come to the Lord as you are and stay the way you came to him. But I'm talking about the grace that can not only forgive you and redeem you, but can transform you and restore your life to a place that people will look back at that formerly wounded individual and marvel at what God has done on the inside. The gospel, when you continue to understand the gospel, the gospel does not 
exalt one redeemed person above another. At the cross, we are all on the same level. The gospel does not favor one nation above another. In the eyes of Christ, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you're from one side of the world or the other, we are all on the same level when it comes to the cross. Dr. Luke wrote it this way in the book of Acts, Acts 17, verse 26. And this is a, this is a text that will do well to be repeated by people living in this racially fragile environment in the world right now. The Bible says, and he has made from what? One blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. The gospel is not a race separator. The gospel is a sin separator. And care what your skin color is. Because when you look at Christ, the gospel focuses less on who we are and the gospel focuses on more on who we can be. Here's the evidence. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, the Bible says, For as in Adam, how many of us? All die, even so in Christ. How many of us? Come on, say it with me. How many? So notice the passage here. It doesn't begin by saying, as in Christ, all shall be made alive, even so in Adam, all shall die. The emphasis is not on what we are, but the emphasis on what we can be. And to go even deeper, the gospel does not overlook our condition. But praise the Lord, because of Jesus, he always introduces an alternative. You've heard the passage. We've read these before. But I pray that you'll see it differently. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me make it very simple. The first part of that passage is what every one of us deserves. But Jesus comes along and says, however, I got a gift for you. Can I say that again? For those of you that have found St. Mattress Cathedral, let me say that one more time. The first part of that passage is what every one of us deserves. But Jesus comes on an earthly mission, and when his feet touch the ground, he says, however, I got a gift for you. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel also reminds us that every one of us is at the same place. Romans 3 and verse 23. Just in case you think that somebody's better than you or you're better than somebody else, here's the great level of scripture. For all have sinned and do what? Fall short of the glory of God. So regardless of country of origin, in our condition of origin is the same. Our what? Condition of origin is the same. Growing up, I heard the phrase, my mom used to repeat this word. She would say, when we would see people that are doing well, she'd say, he was born with a gold spoon in his mouth. You heard that before? Well, as I got older, I realized the only purpose for that gold spoon is to dig his grave. Because there's no advantage over having a gold spoon in your mouth. When it comes to the gospel, that gold spoon can't do anything. The wise man said it this way in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10. 
Notice what he says. The great leveler. See, the Bible is the great leveler. Here's the reason why I share these verses with you. Until we understand where we are, we could never appreciate where we can be in Christ. Look at it. Look at what the wise man says to us. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with what? Do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are what? Where you are going. Now, pause for a moment. Pause for a moment. Pause for, pause for a moment. When we think about it, that's a sobering scripture. That's a sobering passage. In the grave, let's say that together. In the grave, where you are going. As we were going to the house to make a visit on Thursday night, we found another cemetery in southern Illinois that we did not know existed. And as we were driving by, my wife pointed and she said, look at all those lives. Look at all those lives. And the sobering thought came to my mind, if the Lord doesn't come, there's one of those plots waiting for us somewhere. That's a sobering thought. When that reality hits you, 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 you like a falling tree cracking an egg, you come up with the conclusion, I want my life to end in such a way that if and when I'm placed in the grave, I want to be able to come out on the other side in peace with Christ. When the, when the trumpet sounds, I want to be able to come out on the other side knowing that when I'm, when I'm awakened from my dusty grave, I'm not coming out at odds with Christ. I want to come out at peace with Christ. So let's keep ever before our minds that, yes, there is a dusty grave waiting for us, but each one of us has the privilege of having our lives end quite differently. And then we conclude, then we begin to see the other side of that picture because as we sit here today, there is a battle being fought over every one of us. There's a battle for your life. There's a battle for my life. Every one of us each day has to come away with the reality that we have the deciding vote. As one person once said, there's a vote cast in favor of you. There's a vote cast against you. You are the one that casts the deciding vote. And when we, look at back, when we look at Christ, we begin to realize this battle being fought over us is a tenacious battle. But look at what Jesus says in light of this battle. In light of this battle. John 10 and verse 10. He says, The thief does not come except to do what? Steal and to what? Kill and to what else? Destroy. I love it. I, if I were writing this passage, I'd put the word but right there. And it's alluded to. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins. Jesus came to give us abundant life. Now, right now, some of you might be saying, I've heard that before. I mean, that just sounds like scriptures that I've 
I've heard them over and over and over again. So, what's the point? Hang on. When I look at where I was, and I want you to briefly take a moment to rewind the videotape or in the context of our modern society to go back a few chapters in your DVD life and recognize where you used to be and recognize where you are today and ask yourself the question, did Jesus really come to give us life and to give it more abundantly? And are you, and are you praising him for that? And are you saying praise God for that? Praise God for that. Praise the Lord. That we may not be where we are going to be, but thank God we are not where we used to be. I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. But the problem in these changes happening in our lives is that religious people often establish parameters for acceptance by God that even God himself does not establish. This is where terms like conservative and liberal come from. Let me kind of upset you a little bit because you're a little too comfortable. When these terminologies, conservative and liberal, are invoked, and by the way, I've never found those words in the Bible. It's not in the church manual. It's political terms. When you hear the word or the phrase conservative and liberal, it translates into meaning one has to be more saved than the other. And usually, conservatives claim ownership of salvation over liberals. I've been to churches that are very conservative. So they thought. When I recognize that they may have been so exact in following the 28 fundamentals, so exact that you could not sense or feel the love of God in their presence. You might even run into them at fellowship lunch when they ask you what you made your meal with, what's in it. That's why every church needs a Ronnie Hogue. Old folks, say amen. amen. Not everybody can say amen to that because you don't know who Ronnie Hogue is, so let me quickly introduce you to Ronnie Hogue. Ronnie Hogue was a born and bred, straight-up Southern Illinoisan who had no filter. But he loved the Lord. And when he and his wife came to this church, you can tell when Ronnie Hogue was here. When Ronnie was at fellowship lunch, he talked to everybody. He loved everybody. And when he first started coming here, he caught on real quickly and brought food to fellowship lunch. And people loved what Ronnie Hogue made. And his beans were the first ones to go. Until one day they ask him, Ronnie, what do you put in it? Is it just a slice of ham? <laughs> and all the conservatives ran 
for that divine colonic. <laughs> Save us from ourselves, for we have sinned greatly against you. Thinking that, and I'm going to be very straight today, thinking that somehow salvation is based, Lord, help me say it the right way. Jesus wants us to be healthy, does he not? And the health message is a tremendous blessing. But don't ever confuse yourselves thinking that salvation is based on the health message. Salvation is based on the blood of Christ. And you'll come to the understanding of how those things fit into your life. And, and people that are highly conservative, they like passages like this. Philippians 2, verse 13, 12 and 13. They love this one. I've heard them quote this quite a bit. Nothing wrong with it, but they forget, they forget verse 13. They said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As if, as if you have 15 years. I've heard people say, oh, I need more time to work out my salvation. I don't know if I have enough time to work out my salvation. But they fail to realize there's a verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Say that with me, somebody. For it is God who works in you both to do what? To will and to do of his good pleasure. Jesus is the one that when we let him in, he is solely responsible for the extreme makeover. Oh, I know it. <laughs> I've had it. I've had many attempts. And I won't bore you with the results of my attempts. But I am so glad that that passage exists, for it is God who works in you both to will, that is to turn on the desire, and then to accomplish it in us. we got to participate. And I thought about the picture this week, and I said to my wife, that Christianity is like a million-lane highway that each one of us enter at different times in our journey. Think about it. I'm going to talk about the four groups that are on the million-lane highway. The million lane. Picture in your mind, if you can, a million lane highway. The first group on that highway are farther ahead than others. And they want the ones that just started the journey to be where they are. That's the first group. The second group on that million lane highway are some that keep falling off the highway and getting back on. And it really frustrates those that have been traveling for a long time. They're back again where they've been. And we say stuff like, so where have you been all that time? See, we're the son that never left home. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm looking at the back doors. We've been on that highway so long we never left it. When that person finally gets the gumption to put on his shoes or her shoes and walk through the doors on Sabbath the morning, we say, we say, instead of happy Sabbath, so glad to see you, let me hug you and welcome you back. Where have you been? How long is this day going to be? The third group had been on that highway for so long that they have solid food in their lunchbox and they are terribly frustrated by those on the highway that are still drinking milk. Those are the people that know they can quote Ellen White's writings verbatim. 
Sister White said, and the Bible said. And rather than hearing the phrase, as Jesus so wonderfully did to those bound in sin, do you want to be set free? Do you want to be made whole? You see, brethren, when we see somebody struggling, we need to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. Amen. And then there's the fourth group. That fourth group, they're just glad to be on the highway. I'm glad to be on the highway. And they encourage others to join them because, and I want you to grab this, because they realize that the changes taking place in their lives didn't happen the moment they got on the highway. The changes happened in the journey. Come on, you, come on. You didn't get on the highway perfect. You got on the highway bruised and battered, smelling like you just had your last drink, maybe your last cigarette. You got on the highway looking like nobody wants you, but the Lord said, get on the highway, and you got on the highway. And you're one of those that recognize, I cannot believe who I used to be, but I'm thanking God that I'm becoming who he wants me to be. I'm just glad that God allows anybody on the highway. Because if the Lord did not just allow anybody on the highway, many of us wouldn't be allowed to be on that highway. But thank the Lord, he allows anybody on the highway. <laughs> no, praise the Lord that he allows anybody to be on the highway. Because many of us know that if you had to pre-qualify, if there was a credit check that you needed to pass to become a Christian, some of you would be turned down and salvation would not be loaned to you. If they had to check your background, maybe what you post on Facebook, to see if your posts are acceptable to allow you to get on the highway, some of us wouldn't be on the highway. It is so good that when God looks in our past, he sees us as we were, but he immediately turns away after forgiving us, and he says, your sins and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That's why we have to be careful even how we use quotations in, in Ellen White's writings to try to help folk. Because if we, don't, if we don't take what's before that quotation or what's after that quotation, sometimes it leaves a person as hopeless as if you've never told them anything at all. Christ Object Lessons, page 67, paragraph 3. Look at this. I want you to see the journey. As you receive the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of unselfish love and labor for others, you will, what's the next word? Grow and bring forth fruit. 
the graces of the Spirit will ripen in your character. Your faith will do what? Increase. Your convictions what? Deepen. Your love be made what? Perfect. More and more you will reflect the likeness of Christ in all that is pure, noble, and lovely. Now, did you notice the words that indicate growth? Notice the words. Your faith will increase. Your convictions deepen. Your love made perfect. More and more. This is a process. It's not an instantaneous thing. I know that. <laughs> when I found Jesus, I was still a disc jockey. Still partying. Still clubbing. Still gambling. Still hanging out. When I met Jesus. When my good friend Pastor Doug Batchelor got baptized, he got arrested that same night. Spend the night of his baptismal day in jail. But look at him now. You see, reflecting Christ's character is what happens in the journey, not at the point of conversion. We steadily grow into that person that Jesus knows we can be as we grow the evidence, and I want you to grab this, as we grow, the fruit begin to show up, and then people are able to say, that's an orange tree, that's an apple tree, that's a Christian. There is, I see love, joy, peace, long-suffering. I see gentle, gentleness, I see meekness, I see patience. See, I'm convinced that we ought to become like Christ more and more every day. But the Lord never says, you need to become like me before you enter the journey. But so many of us say, well, he can't join the church. Look at his temper. Why would we baptize somebody with that kind of temper? That would leave Peter out. And Isaiah wouldn't be allowed to come in because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And when you begin to examine the lives of all the men and women that God used in the Bible, you begin to see at the beginning of their entrance into the service of Christ, they were by no means what they were later on. Paul, his testimony, when he became a Christian, his conversion story was, what I don't want to do, that's what I do. What I, what I want to do, that's what I can't do. I'm wretched, and I'm, I know Christ, but I'm wretched. Have you ever been wretched? But the Lord says, hang on in there. I'm not done with you yet. You see, the evidence of our connection to Christ is not visible at the point when we turn our lives over to Christ. It becomes evident eventually. Here's my evidence. Here's my evidence. 1 John 3 and verse 2. Here it is. Behold. Let's say the next word. Let's say the next word. Now. When? Now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed... We shall be what? Like him, for we shall what? See him as he is. That's a hallelujah right there. So what that text is today, don't get discouraged when you don't see yourself the way that Christ sees you. He sees a beautifully reconditioned, brand new interior to the house. He can see where all the furniture is going to be. My wife and I, we like HGTV. We like to see the new houses. We don't own one, but we, we're still dreaming. 
We're going to get one before the Lord comes, hopefully. But if we don't, honey, we got a mansion waiting for us. It's amazing. We like to build big houses just to put a whole lot of junk in it. And we're happy when we get one. The Lord sees us on the inside and on the outside. He cleans us up on the outside, but more than anything else, the Lord is saying, regardless of how people see you, grab this, regardless of how people see you, now you are my child. And the, and the folks that are waiting for the evidence, it's not going to show up yet because it has not yet been revealed. So when people are looking to see whether or not you are like Christ, brethren, give folk a chance to grow. Because they know it's in the world. They want to be able to come to a place where they could be just like you, a seed in the plant pot of divinity, watered by the grace of Christ, allowing the sunshine of Jesus to reflect on them. And one day, a sprout will show up and you will be amazed that what you thought was useless and worthless has now become a plant to the glory of God. I love this story. My wife and I know about the story. For those of you that are new, I'll tell you. For those of you that heard it before, hold on. When we lived in Antioch, California, and in our kitchen right by the window, my wife had a little plastic Dixie cup with a little twig, I mean little, in the cup, so short it couldn't reach the top. So I was cleaning the kitchen one day or doing something at the sink, and I picked it up to throw it out. She said, put my plant down. What plant? That? Put my plant down. Bob, it was a twig. It looked like it had no vitamins, no nourishment, nothing. But, all right, you know, when your wife says, put it down, sons, put it down. Don't argue. Because I've learned that men, when you argue and you think the argument is over, it's not done yet. <laughs> when you think you win, it ain't over. Because they are, re they, they go, see, women go back in the room and start thinking of things that they didn't say yet. And they come back for part two. So if you think you won, just stop arguing. And like the U-turn, just say, honey, I promise that will never happen again. <laughs> but we wait for these evidences, and they don't show up immediately. So my wife kept on watering this thing, watering this thing. And one day, well, I just ignored it because after a while it didn't make any sense to me. But one day, it caught my attention because I saw her buy a little small plant pot at the store and some potting soil, and she came home, Alice, and took that little thing and put it in the plant pot. It looked like a straw in the ocean. And she put that thing ever so tenderly in there and just tapped around it, put a little bit of water in it. A few months went by, and I saw another branch come out. About nine or so months later, or maybe a little more than that, she gave that plant to someone as a gift. And when she gave that plant to them as a gift, 
She took me all the way back to that day when I was about to throw it away, and she said, see, I told you it was a plant. I had to wait about 11 months to hear that. (laughs) So when you think it's over, it ain't over. This is a passage that we often read that sometimes frustrates people. This is a quotation from Ellen White's writings, Christ Object Lessons. But notice this. Page 69, paragraph 1. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be, what's that next word? Perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. We read that quote, and we come up with the conclusion that, April, that that we have to be the one working on perfecting this character and we are struggling like a fish in a blender to save our lives. And we are working, we're trying our best to perfectly reproduce the character of Christ in us. But i got to ask the question, how do imperfect people perfectly reproduce anything? What they fail to realize is there's another portion to that passage that when you, read the, when you read the paragraph right before that, Ellen White talks about how plants grow. She talks about the growth of a plant. As the plant puts forth leaves and roots and fruits, she says, in this same way, as we are growing, as we are growing the character of Christ, the end result will be his character will be fully reproduced in us. So, so don't think that i got to figure out a method or an equation to perfectly be able to reproduce the character of Christ in us. We who are imperfect cannot produce anything perfect. And we like those scriptures. Be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we go about in our own silent pain. Ah, I blew it again. And we start over this week. And we start over next week. And we hold our breath for three days, and on the fourth day we fall forward because we are unconscious. Can't do it. But brethren, the guarantee of the work of Christ is not in our behalf. We cooperate, but it is God, it, through the power of Christ, through the influence of the Spirit of God, that's molding us and making us. And I praise the Lord that he has given us guarantee in the Scripture that he is the one that's going to accomplish what he started. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49. Look at the Bible. The Bible says, And as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That's a scripture that you can hold as a guarantee. This is what you look like, but this is what you're going to look like. Hold on, I'm not done yet. Philippians 1, and verse 6. Another passage. What are the first two words said together? Being confident. Do you have confidence yet that God can do it? Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work where? In you will complete it until the day of what? Of Jesus Christ. The Lord is working. The Lord is at work. Come on, somebody, say amen. The Lord is working. Why is he working? He's not working to get us into heaven. Some of us think that. He's working in us so that people on earth can believe that Jesus is real because they see him in us. 
Some people will never be in heaven. But Christ doesn't. He wants them to be there. But the way he does it is he wants himself to be revealed through our lives. And brethren, it is a simple process. Here's another quotation. Christ, Object Lessons, page 231, paragraph 2. Listen to what the servant of the Lord says. She says, the success, the success of the gospel message does not depend upon learned speeches, eloquent testimonies, or deep arguments. What does she say? It depends upon the what? The simplicity of the message and its adaptation to the souls that are hungering for the bread of life. What shall I do to be saved? This is the want of souls that are hungering for the bread of life. What shall I do to be saved? This is the want of the soul. The rich young ruler had it all, but what did he ask? What shall I do to be saved? When people come to find Christ, they want to know, what shall I do to be saved? When we talk about giving Bible studies, it is not to teach them everything about the church off the bat. we got to teach them what, way, what they can do to be saved. But now let's begin, to, let's begin to cook the egg. Here we go. What can we do to be saved? Jesus reveals it in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, what's the three words? Say to them, here's your script. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But watch this now. But that the wicked do what? Turn from his ways and live. Let's say it again. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? For why should you die, O house of Israel? The longing of the Lord is not the request of evidence. The Lord doesn't say, so why should I save you? He doesn't say that. So why should I accept you? He doesn't say that. Praise the Lord, he doesn't say that, because you know what? I could not come up with an answer. I'm pleased with the reality that he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. On the day of Pentecost, this was, this was also a part of the message of Peter, the sermon of a man that understood what it means to turn. Acts 3 and verse 26, look what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Speaking to the Jewish leaders, those that did not know Christ, he said to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in what? In turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So God is giving the same message today. We must preach a turning away. Now, by the way, let me make something very clear. I have a quotation, and I want to read it, but I want you to hold on to your seats as I read it. This is my winding up quotation. The Lord wants us to say to the person that is in despair, the person feeling left out, the person feeling that he or she is a great transgressor, and there's no possible way, we must say all you got to do is turn to the Lord, and he'll accept you just as you are, but he will not leave you the way he finds you. And by the way, whether you know it or not, the turn comes before the confession. 
Listen to this. Focus clearly on the screen. It's quite a lengthy quote, but you'll appreciate it. Evangelism, page 286, paragraphs 1 to 3. I have been shown that many have confused ideas in regard to conversion. They have often heard the words repeated from the pulpit, you must be born again, you must have a new heart. These expressions have perplexed them. They could not comprehend the plan of salvation. Many have stumbled to ruin because of the erroneous doctrine taught by some ministers concerning the change that takes place at conversion. Some have lived in sadness for years, waiting for some marked evidence that they were accepted by God. They have separated themselves in a large measure from the world and find pleasure in associating with the people of God, yet they dare not profess Christ because they fear it would be presumption to say that they are children of God. They are waiting for that peculiar change that they have been led to believe is connected with conversion. Lord have mercy. After a time, some of these do receive evidence of their acceptance with God and are then led to identify themselves with the people, with his people. And they date their conversion from that time. But I have been shown, but I have been shown that they were adopted into the family of God before that time. God accepted them when they became weary of sin and having lost their desire for worldly pleasure, resolved to seek God earnestly. When did God accept them? When they became what? Weary of sin. Are you tired of sin and straying, Lord? When they became tired of the old way, at that moment, God accepted them. Can the church say amen? amen. But it's going to get deeper. But failing to understand the simplicity of the plan of salvation, they lost many privileges and blessings which they might have claimed had they only believed when they first turned to God that he had accepted them. You turn, God accepts you. I liken it like a man on the highway. My people on Wednesday night know what I'm talking about. They know where I'm headed. I liken it to a man on the highway. He's racing in the wrong direction, and you are pursuing him with the attempt to try to catch up to him, but you're failing because he's moving at a great pace, and you know he's on the phone. You're saying, please turn around. You don't have to go that way. Your life is more valuable than that. There's hope if you turn around, and all of a sudden in your Winch in your, in your forward-looking view, you see him begin to signal that he's going to get off at the next exit. And he begins to get off at the next exit. When you see this signal, you say to yourself, I've been yelling at him for the longest to get off the next exit and go in the opposite direction. And when he signals, at that very moment, you say, praise God he's listening. Praise God he heard me. And he gets off the exit. He crosses over. 
and he gets on the other side of the highway and begins to go in the opposite direction coming back home. Here's my point. The moment that he signaled, at that very moment, Jesus accepted him because he desired to make a turn. But so often we make it clear we make it seem as though there's so much you got to do to be accepted by God. But it just says, when they first turned to God, he had accepted them. When they first got off that exit, he had accepted them. When they made that decision to go in the opposite direction, God accepted them as his, as his child, as his son, and as his daughter. That's why Ezekiel 18 says it so beautifully this way. Look at this. Again, when a wicked man, come on turns away from the wickedness which he, which he had committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Why? Because he considers and does what? Turns away from all the transgressions which he committed and shall surely live. He shall not die. Will the church say amen? amen. You see, Jesus didn't come to condemn us from going in the wrong direction, he came to turn our lives around and say there is a better direction. Look at this last quotation. It's a powerful one, and I praise God for it. I hope you're getting the point. The point of the matter is, when we turn our lives, the moment we say we are weary of sin, it is at that very key moment in our experience. We don't know what the church teaches. We don't know what they believe. We don't know how they eat. We don't understand the day that they worship on, but in the moment that we become weary of sin, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the man bound in chains, Peter in prison, brethren, these stories make sense in the Bible because at that moment, Jesus said to those in sin, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. And at that very moment, they knew they had a friend in Christ. But watch this. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 40, paragraph 1. Humanity has in itself no light. Apart from Christ, we are all like a what? Unkindled taper. Like the moon when her face is turned away from the sun. We have not a single ray of brightness to shed into the darkness of the world. Watch this. But when we turn toward the sun of righteousness... When we come in touch with Christ, what happens? The whole soul is aglow with the brightness of the divine presence. What does that mean? The evidences of Christ's divine presence comes after we have already turned and he begins to manifest himself in our lives. You don't need evidence before the turn. The evidence comes after we turn our lives over to Christ. Are you getting it? Is it making sense? So what's the point? If a person wants to give his life to Christ, I'm going to say I'm going to accept him as he is and let the Lord make the changes. Because so far, so long, I've seen people fall away. We say, we got to do this, 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 and this, and don't forget this, and you got a week to do it. And when you get it done, give me a call and I'll be glad to baptize you. But the Lord says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So brethren, may the spirit that is upon the Lord be upon us to give hope 
and encouragement. Don't look and expect to see the evidence. But when Christ comes in, the evidence will be clear that that individual has made a U-turn and Christ is in that life. So let me ask the question as I close. Is there something in your life for which you need to make a U-turn? A U-turn. Feeling you can't do it on your own. Feeling bound in that, in that hopelessness. Today, the message from this pulpit is Christ will accept you the moment that you make the turn. You don't have it all together yet. That's Christ's job. You don't understand all the doctrines. You'll learn that. But if your desire today is to turn your life over to Christ and say, Father, there's something in my life I need to turn over to you. I need to get off my highway and go in the opposite direction. I need to come back to you. Lord, will you accept me at that very moment? The message today is the Spirit of God will accept you as you are and change you in the journey. Brethren, is that good news somewhere? That's our message. So today, my appeal is twofold. If you've, been on the highway for, if you've been on the highway for a long time and want to stay on that highway, why don't you stand with me? I've been on that highway. I want to stay on that highway. I want to see the evidence show up in my life. But I got another appeal. I've been on the highway, and for some reason I got off that highway. Would you please open your arms so that I can come on the highway with you? If there's somebody here today that wants to get back on that highway, and know that the moment you turn, Christ accepts you. Would you raise your hand? Yes. Father in heaven, you came to seek and to save that which was lost. Not that which was perfect. Not that which was completed and fully designed and had it all together and knew exactly what to do. You came to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are bound, to proclaim Liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are incarcerated. And Father, today in many of our lives, somehow, somewhere, we may have gotten off that road and felt so disappointed and so disheartened. But precious Lord, today, our hearts are filled with joy knowing that if we simply make that U-turn today, you are there waiting like the prodigal father, with open arms to embrace us, to accept us, to redeem us, to transform us, and to change us. And as your children, Lord, may those who come in touch with us find that same grace, the grace that changed them can change anybody. The Christ that accepted them is waiting to accept anybody. Because one day we're going to all stand on that sea of glass. And I believe the first thought in our mind is, how did we get here? Lord, we will only be able to boast 
that you changed us. You transformed us after you accepted us. So may we not be pillars of discouragement, but may we find and communicate the gospel that it is never too late to come to Christ as you are. May we be ambassadors of that message, reflecting that truth, revealing that Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.